This morning, I just want to confess to you that Christmas gets complicated. Does Christmas get complicated at your house? It always gets complicated at our house. Uh, the Saturday before Christmas is always our Lodge family gathering. That's when we all get together. But of one thing you can be sure of with the Lodge family, some kid's going to get sick, all right? So we had another one running a fever and so on and so forth. Now we've, we've pushed it off to this coming Thursday and uh, just hope it works. But Christmas is complicated for all kinds of reasons. When you think about it, uh, you know, uh, you have to be able to uh, answer questions to the young ones, the little ones there, uh, all things about, uh, you know, reindeer and elves and men in little red suits. Uh, snowmen and Jack Frost got to get in there somewhere. Uh, then the family dimension just complicates things. Going, going home for Christmas, uh, that's a big part of, of my, my background. When I was real young, my father was like Superman. I mean, he would work all day, come home, manage to pack up everything and get it in our car, drive all the way through the night to get to my grandparents' house, and be sociable the next day. I mean, that's just phenomenal. And then, you know, that's, that's, and then mom just made it all okay. She somehow made things flow uh, together. But then, you know, you get all of that, you've got the secret presence and all of these things working together that you're wanting to, to have. And then you gather together as a family and then you say, this is a religious holiday. Did anybody bring a Bible? And nobody remembers to pack a Bible, so you have to go get the big family Bible. And you have to find a place in there that, that tells about the Christmas story. And then you find out it's not all in one place. And so whatever you're reading is missing some major points. And the kids want to know why it isn't all there in one place. Wouldn't it be nice if you could condense everything about Christmas? The lights, the parties, the family, the gifts... It's so very complicated. Wouldn't it be nice to uncomplicate it? Wouldn't it be nice to package it in just one sentence that reaches out and grabs all of these wonderful traditions, all of the mythology and all of the facts, pull it all together in one simple to understand and reproduce sentence? You know, Jesus had a way of simplifying things. <clears throat> God had this wonderful ability as a matter of fact, he, he brought Christmas down to where you can understand it in just two names. He said, you will call his name Emmanuel. That means God with us. And then the angel told Joseph, you will likewise call his name Yeshua, Jesus. And together these two names mean God is with us, saving us. From our sins. But let me suggest, this is not original to me. As a matter of fact, I really don't remember where I first got it. I have shared this and cherished it in my heart for so many years, I forgot where it came from. So whoever it is out there that originated this, thank you for it. Here's Christmas in a sentence. The Son of God became the Son of Man so that sons of men might become sons of God. And we're going to take that apart in several different elements. But the first two key terms comes out of the passage that we read earlier today from Luke chapter 22. And 
Jesus answered these priests and he said, hereafter the Son of Man, remember that? The Son of Man will sit at the right hand of God in power. And then they all said them, they questioned him, are you then the Son of God? And so he said to them, you have rightly said that I am. The first phrase here is the Son of God. The Son of God speaks of the divinity of Jesus Christ. Not simply a baby in a manger. Not simply, though miraculously, a virgin birth. But God himself. This is a title that Jesus took for himself. And let me tell you, it was not without a great deal of, of, of complication. You see, many uh, rulers, many emperors and so on had claimed to be a god. Uh, the, the pharaohs of Egypt claimed to be divine. They claimed to be God. So for somebody uh, in human form to claim divinity was not anything that was new. But it never had happened among the Jewish culture. Because for the Jews, they, they worshipped one God and one only. And that was Yahweh. That was Jehovah. That was the Lord God. That's who they worshipped. And none others were ever allowed. And so the very thought that an individual would claim divinity was absolute blasphemy in the Jewish ears. This was just unheard of, unthinkable. And yet this is the term that Jesus chose for himself and used so very often. Will you, will you turn to the Gospel of Luke chapter 1 and find verse 35, and I'm going to be there in, in just a moment. In John chapter 9, verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast this one man out. And when he had found him, he said to him, do you believe in the Son of God? And the man answered and said, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said, you have both seen him, and it is he who is talking to you. Jesus chose this term for himself. And in Luke chapter 1, in verse 35, we find the angel Gabriel in talking to Mary. You see what it says there? The Holy One who is born in you will be called the Son of God. Did you know Satan and all the demons recognize that Jesus Christ is none other than the Son of God? They don't worship him, but they recognize who he genuinely is. In Matthew 4, verses 3 and 6, when Satan was tempting Jesus in the wilderness. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. And later, if you are the son of God, cast yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple. You see, Satan knew who Jesus claimed to be and who he really was. He didn't recognize him as such. He didn't worship him, but he knew it to be so. The disciples the disciples understand who he was. Jesus asked a question one day. Who do men say that I, the son of man, am? And they told him, well, some say Elijah, some John the Baptist, some one of the prophets. And he said, but who do you say? And remember what Peter said? Thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. The disciples knew. They recognized who he was. Interestingly enough, the scribes and the Pharisees and the chief priests, all of them recognized that Jesus claimed this title for himself. Now, now they didn't accept it either. As a matter of fact, it made them f 
furious is what caused them to seek to kill him. But they testified that this was the title that Jesus used of himself. In Matthew 26, 63, it says, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said, I am. Using the holy name of God to answer their question. If you remember, this is the very accusation that was brought against Jesus as he stood before Pilate. Jesus, uh, uh, Jesus answered him, we have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die because he has made himself out to be the Son of God. And even as Jesus hung on the cross, those who were badgering him would say, if you're the Son of God, then come down. Well, he was proving he was the Son of God, but not by their terms, in terms that were written in the Scriptures long, long before him. So they didn't accept him as the son of God, but they recognized he used this term about himself. But when he died, do you remember the centurion, a Roman, not a Christian, not a Jew, a Roman pagan, looked up at that man on the cross, the Lord Jesus, and what did he say? Surely this must be the son of God. Even this Roman pagan recognized him as such. The gospel writer Mark titled his gospel, The Beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The gospel writer John, in a very similar way, says, and I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. And he wrote his gospel with the hopes that these things are written that you may believe in Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Remember Nathaniel, also a disciple, when he came to Jesus and Jesus told him, you know, before you've ever met me, I saw you sitting under the fig tree crying out to God. Remember what Nathaniel said? He said, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. When Lazarus died and Jesus came and Martha ran out to visit with him, you remember Martha's words? She said, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Son of God. Even, even later, Saul made this the very keynote of his preaching. After he was saved, in Acts 9, it says, immediately he preached Christ in a synagogue that he was the Son of God. So uh, we can settle that, can't we? The term Son of God means divinity. It means God himself. Jesus claimed to be none other than God himself. That was his claim. But what, what does that mean? Go to John chapter 3 and verse 16 through 18. I want to remind you of that passage. But I want to hang on it, this phrase. Because it is critical here. John uses a word here that is very unique. And as a matter of fact, it means unique. And in John chapter 3, he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his, here's the word, only begotten son. His only begotten son. That Greek word is monogenes. And it means unique. Never before and never again absolutely uniquely given. That's what that word monogonese means. 
You see, he's not a man who attained godhood as some organizations who would like to call themselves Christian. They're not, but they'll try to tell you. And neither was he a God who disguised himself as a man, as other religions will tell you. Jesus Christ was God himself in human form. For God so loved the world that he gave his uniquely born, one-of-a-kind, never-to-be-repeated son. God gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then look, it goes on to say, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This ties the title Son of God with his purpose. The salvation of mankind hinges on his divinity. And we're saved when we recognize that Jesus Christ is God in human form. So this Christmas in a sentence begins where it should, with the Son of God. That's what it's about. You've got to keep that focused. It's so easy to get, get... confused and get, have to be complicated at Christmas time, that it's about the presents or it's about the family gathering together or it's about the food or, or it's about the lights or it's about the songs or whatever. All of these are wonderful and I love them and I get so energized by them. But the crosshairs fall on this sentence. The Son of God. Now let's go on. The Son of God became the Son of Man. The Son of God became the Son of Man. This is the the, the favorite term that Ezekiel uses, and he uses about himself, and he uses of others. It talks about humanity. It it talks about just plain, ordinary, fickle human beings. Son of Man just means people, but not, not just any people. The Son of God became the Son of Man. And it carries with it the why. Why? Because God wanted man to know him. God wanted man to know him. He's always wanted man to know him. He he sought to reveal himself in creation. He revealed himself in the law. He revealed himself through the prophets. But in the fullness of time, his clearest, most transparent revelation of himself was when he stepped in to humanity and he became part of his creation when the Son of God became the Son of Man. Now, Jesus, again, chose this title for himself and he used it interchangeably with Son of God. But let's just listen just a little bit what Jesus had to say. By the way, uh, uh, stay in the third chapter of John. I'm going I'm to come back to that in just a moment. In John chapter 3, Verses 13 and 15, he says, No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man, who was in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, 
that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. He's referring to him and his humanity accomplishing what was necessary to save mankind. So God, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, became the Son of Man, absolutely like every one of us. He would sweat and get stinky and have to take a bath. He would stump his toe and... In every way that you're a human being, God became that. God became that. So in every way, just like you and I, he could be tempted. Just like you and I, in every way, he could be hurt. Just like you and I, in every way, would take what life had to give him right on the chin. Because he was going to take our place. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Jesus referenced this term over and over when he talked about his, his salvation in Matthew 18. He said, the Son of Man has came to seek and to save that which is lost. He used it in all the parables about the end times. When you read that lengthy passage uh, in two different Gospels, over and over again, he talks about the coming of the Son of Man using this title of his, as his self. He used it to his disciples when he asked, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? The Son of Man has totally, total empathy and total sympathy with you. Because he can't, became a man, he knows what it is to have a heartache. He knows what it is to have your friends turn and family turn on you. He knows what it is to have a wonderful and glorious plan and, and, and look at it appear to be falling apart. He knows what it's like when you've poured your heart into people and you see them running away from you and not standing by you. He came as Son of Man to totally experience humanity. Total man. Here's what I want you to see. Jesus Christ was 100% God and 100% man. Now, you say you don't understand that. I don't understand the metaphysics of it. I, don't, I, I can't diagram that even on a sentence for you or, or on a picture. But this is what the Word of God says. It's beyond our grasp of our most intelligent minds, and yet it's simple enough just simply to believe the Son of God became the Son of Man. But the sentence doesn't stop there. Because, you see, the question is, why? Why would the eternal Son of God leave heaven, leave the glories of eternity, Leave the presence of the Father that he loved. Leave the adoration of angels. And absolute and complete control of everything was happening in every solar system in the universe. Why would he step into his creation and be limited in space and time? The sentence goes on. The Son of Man, 
the Son of God became the Son of Man, so that sons of men, sons of men, listen, this is about us. This is easier. The sons of men, that's just, that's just people. And though it's masculine, it refers to the whole of the human race. This is important. Don't, don't miss this. Christmas is about the coming of Jesus, but the reason he came is you and me. The reason for Christmas was for you and I. You see, we could not know man, God. We could not experience him. We, as his creation, are fallen and sinful and filthy. We can't have a relationship with him because he's holy and pure and magnificent in all of his ways. And he can't in any way be tainted with sin. And we need to know him. We needed to know our spiritual condition. See, when Jesus came, he helped us understand who we are and why we do desperately need him. See, the heart of man's problem is the problem of man's heart. Without exception, each and every one of us have gone through life saying, I want what I want. We are, we are selfish by nature, and, and I mean, we may do things that are, are, are good for people. We may do altruistic things. We might do benevolent things from time to time. But at our very core, we are as selfish a creature as ever walked on this earth. And, and that's our very nature. It's about us. And that stays with us our whole lives. And it becomes the primary battle that you and I face as a Christ follower is to deny ourselves to where we can follow him as our Savior and as our Lord. Our condition of lostness is why Jesus came to open up the agony and the depths of our need. And Paul writes in Ephesians 3 that the sons of men are absolutely ignorant of the ways of God and they have an inborn rebellion that they just can't fix. And their spirits are dead. And because our spirits are dead, we can't communicate with God. We can't grasp even who he is. And that's the reason he came. The Son of God became the Son of Man so that sons of men might become sons of God. Turn to John chapter 1 and find verse 12. We'll be there in a minute. See, Jesus came to meet you and I at the point of our deepest need. And my deepest need is that I am so selfish. I am so determined to have things my way that that's created this huge chasm between me and God. And no amount of good deeds, no amount of coming to church, none of those things are enough to bridge that chasm. And God knew this. And before the beginning of time, he, he planned a means whereby I could have relationship. I could have union. I could not only know God, but know his love 
and love him in return. This was planned by the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, before the world ever began. Because he knew that you and I would sin and separate ourselves from him. And so here's what he did. The Son of God became the Son of Man to bear my sins and yours upon himself. To die on Calvary's cross to take the full punishment for my sins and yours upon himself. And then rise again on the third day that he could be the absolute victor over death and hell and be able to give to you and I eternal life. And that life is wrapped up in his love and being in him. This is the day greatest need you and I have. And this is why Christmas is celebrated. Because the Son of God became the Son of Man so that sons of men might become sons of God. That you may know him in all of his love and all of his glory. That you might be one with him. So, you look at the lights and the decorations and it reminds us of the light of the world. You look at the evergreen trees and it reminds us that, that he is eternal and we have offered eternal life. You get excited about giving because the greatest gift has been given to you. Family means all the more importance because your gathering here on earth is just a foretaste of being together in all eternity in heaven. All that is wonderful and cherished about Christmas is wrapped up in this little sentence. Let it be what you talk about this Christmas season. Let it be what leads your devotion time as you gather with your family. Let it be the focus that the Son of God became the Son of Man so that sons of men might become sons of God. Have you received that tremendous gift into your heart? The gift of Christmas is really this. It's not a new pair of shoes or a great new dress. It's not even getting to be with all the family. The greatest gift is to receive Jesus Christ into our heart as our Lord and Savior. If you have not done that, I want to lead you in how to do that. If you have, I want you to use this time to do two things. I want you to pray for the people on either side of you, and I want you to celebrate what God has done in your life. Will you pray with me? God, today I, I have heard and, and I dare to believe that you, Lord Jesus, the Son of God, became the Son of Man so that I, as a Son of Man, might become a son or daughter of God. I don't fully understand that, but I dare to believe it based on what the Bible has said today. So right now, Lord Jesus, I want to confess to you 
that I am a sinner. I've done life my own way. And I really hadn't cared that much what the Bible says or what the preacher says or what the church teaches. I've wanted what I've wanted, and I've went after it. But Lord, it really doesn't completely satisfy. So right now, I confess to you that I am a sinner in need of a Savior. I ask you to come into my heart. I want to turn away from doing life my own way. And I want to follow you. I want you to be the boss of my life. So come in and, and cleanse me and forgive me. And make me that new person that I've heard about in Christ. I dare to believe when you died on the cross, it was to take my sins on yourself. And when you rose again, it was so that I could have your eternal life. I receive you, Lord Jesus, as my Savior and Lord. Father, I know because of your word that right now you and all the angels of heaven are rejoicing for those who have received the Christmas gift as their own. We would like to have a time to celebrate as well. So Lord, if anybody in our church family have prayed that prayer today, anyone here, Lord, I pray that in these next few moments, that as Ed leads us in singing, and Tony and Derek are right here at the front, that they will have the courage to step out and come and take one of our ministers by the hand and just say, I prayed with a pastor. Because we want to encourage them. Father, we want to love on them. We want to pour into them the love that you've poured into us. And Father, for those at home that have prayed today, Lord, will you encourage them to call us or text us or email us somewhere, get in touch with us and just say, hey, I prayed with the pastor and asked Jesus into our heart. We'd love to send them some material to encourage them in their new walk in, in Christ. Lord, this is time for us to celebrate with you. It's still worship, worshiping you for who you are and what you're doing in our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.